Well, my name is Dean Annan, and I'm the discipleship pastor here at Village Church. I'll be down afterwards. Uh, I'd love to meet you. Sometimes people put people into categories. Now, um, sometimes it's not too bad, but other times it is. Um, sometimes we put people in school categories, right? Like homeschool. Maybe, maybe you're schooled in your home or maybe you do something like heritage or green tree or greenhouse or something like that. If you know what I'm talking about, you know what I'm talking about. Or sometimes maybe you go to a school like Bartlett or Eastview or say, yeah, there we go. Or South, waiting for that one. Or South Elgin. Maybe they won't say that one at 11.15. Um, Wheaton Schools, Wheaton Academy, St. Charles East. Yes, I'm reading from a list here. Schomburg Christian, Hampshire, Kenyon Woods. Can't say all of them. I know there's one that a lot of you go to. Um, Westminster, that's it. <laughs> Couldn't think of that one. But buckets is what we do as people. We put people into buckets. Sometimes we want control. Sometimes we want to feel good. It's just kind of what we do as people. Uh, sometimes it's counterproductive, though. It's not always a good thing to do that. Uh, the problems we have with, with categorizing people is throughout human history, we've had this tendency to do that. And when we do that, we have a tendency to either ignore them, reject them, or to persecute them. You can see why sometimes it's a bad idea, even people from different schools. So when we do that, as human beings we can easily at times fall into this demonic trap. And the demonic trap is we see people as less than human. You know, our flesh wants to protect ourselves, right? It's just a natural thing. We isolate, uh, we do that, we create categories. But God uses faithful people regardless of their categories. God's all about bringing people together. That's what he does. That's why he sent Christ to bring us together into one family, regardless of your category. It is through this God, common faith in this God, the God of the Bible, the God of the gospel, Jesus Christ. It's by his grace and his grace alone that we are redeemed and brought together into the family of God. So we're in the second week of a series called Orchestrated. We're looking at Matthew chapter 1. We're going to be there, verses 1 through 17, in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And last week, we looked at some of the men in the genealogy, some of their failures, um, the failures that God still used to bring and to usher in his Messiah. And this week, we're going to look at the women in Matthew's genealogy. Uh, but they're not the women you might expect. They're not going to be women like Sarah or Rebecca or Abigail. Not those. Let's look at Matthew chapter 1, verse 3 on the screen. It says, And Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon. Verse five. And Salmon, the father of Boaz by Ruth, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of of Uriah. And last week we know that the wife of Uriah is Bathsheba. And so there's four women that are mentioned here so far we had on the screen. We had four of them mentioned. Uh, one more will come in verse 16, and that's Mary, the mother of Jesus. But these five women here, here they are on the screen. Tamar, Genesis chapter 38, Rahab, that's in Joshua 2. I'll put the slide up again one more time in case you want to see those. Joshua chapter 2 and chapter 6, that's Rahab, Ruth, the book of Ruth. Bathsheba, 2 Samuel chapter 11, all that in the Old Testament, and of course in the Gospels, uh, 
will see Mother Mary. So Matthew, he's purposely doing this, putting these women in there. He wants our attention to be drawn to them because they usually weren't included in genealogies of the culture of that day, women weren't. But all five of these women have something about them, uh, something in their past, something in their story that could be a category or they could be rejected. We'll talk about that later. And at least three of these women of the five were mistreated and abused horribly by men. Uh, These women were considered rejects in some ways to some of the Jewish audience early on. And, And Matthew, the tax collector, he understands what it's to be rejected. And he puts these women in the genealogy. So I want to tell the stories. We're going to have to go pretty quick, but I'm going to tell the stories of these five women, their differences, their commonalities, uh, their pain, what God took them through, and their faith, and how God orchestrated all of that to bring in his Messiah. Verse 3, Matthew chapter 1, verse 3. We already had it up there, but you see the name Tamar. So when we get to Tamar, we're in Genesis chapter 38. Now, there's three Tamars in the Bible. This is one of them. This is the early on Tamar. And so we're at a point in Jewish history that's very, very dangerous. Because what's happening here is we're at a danger point where we're up against the potential of not having an heir to continue the promise, the promise that was given through Abraham to this coming uh, Messiah king. But we're at that point where it seems like maybe there's not going to be an heir. Just like Sarah earlier and Rachel before her, Tamar's story is a story of childlessness. That's a big deal in that day. And Judah, we see his name in verse three. He's the son of Jacob. He was the man that sold, I mentioned last week, his brother Joseph into slavery. So Tamar, what is she? She's a Canaanite woman. She's a foreigner. It's a big deal. Uh, The daughter-in-law of Judah. Well, Tamar's husband died, leaving her a widow without children and an heir for the line. There's no heir for the line. So with that, and with the mistreatment of evil men in her life, she has no children. And so what she does is she disguises herself. She disguises herself as a prostitute, and she deceives and seduces Judah, her father-in-law, so that she could sleep with him and have sons. And she did. In verse 3, we saw that there were two boys' names, Perez and Zerah. The twins. But how did we get there? How, how did she get to that point? I mean, how did she deceive her father-in-law in that way? Remember, there's deceit and deceitfulness in this family, right? I talked about Judah a minute ago. But before all this happened, if we go back a little bit in time, Tamar was married. And she was married. She was married to Er. And Er, it was Judah's oldest son, but the Lord killed Er because he was exceedingly wicked. And so he's not in the picture anymore. Here's what the Bible says about Er. Genesis 38, verse seven. But Er, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. We really don't know much more than that. But he was a wicked man. So Judah, however, had two other sons. And that's important, Onan and Shelah. And in that culture, in that day, what's supposed to happen is Tamar would marry one of them. That's the way things were done. But Onan was so evil that the Lord also put him to death. So then you get to Shelah, the next son. He didn't marry Tamar, and he should have. It was his role to do it, but he didn't. So Tamar took matters into her own hands, and she hid her identity. 
and tricked Judah, her father-in-law, and became pregnant, and she delivered the two sons that I mentioned. That's how we got there. Um, doesn't sound pretty. <laughs> this was just evil. It was dysfunctional, but mainly I want to put that label on the men. There's evil and dysfunctional men in her life, not doing their jobs, not during, during, doing their roles. Now, what Tamar did was wrong. It was sin. It wasn't right, but she felt backed into a corner. It's hard for us in this day and age to understand how she felt. She's backed into that corner. Her story is one of loss. Her story is one of pain. Her story is one of evil and uh, evil, evil people around her, childlessness and deception. That all fills Tamar's story. That's where she's at. And what we want to understand, though, also, I think, is that it was Tamar's right in that day to have a son to continue the line, to continue the line of Judah. And she cared deeply about that. She cared about preserving this promise, this line that was to continue through Abraham and Judah and so on. She cared about this Messiah. She didn't know a lot, but who this would be one day. And Matthew wants us to see God's orchestration and the redemption and the faith that she has. And I'll get to the faith. Because even through her and her reputation, God is working. God does what he does, even through the pain. Her sin and deception of Tamar's wasn't right. But her concern of continuing this covenant promise of believing God's plan was good and was righteous. And we know that because Judah writes about that. It's in the scripture. In Genesis chapter 38, verse 26, we have it on the screen. It says this. Now, this is Judah talking about Tamar. Remember, he was just deceived. Remember? She is, meaning Tamar, is more righteous than I, Judah is saying, since I did not give her to my son, Shelah. What he's saying is, I blew it. And he's recognizing Tamar, that she demonstrated real righteousness because she cared about God's plan. Was she perfect? No, but she cared about the plan. And Perez, her son then, was born and continued the lineage. Well, that's Tamar, that's her reputation. There's another reputation, another person to turn to, and that's Rahab. This is verse five, turning to Rahab. Verse five, I won't read the whole thing there again, but basically we see Rahab and Solomon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. Rahab's story is found in Joshua chapters 2 and 6. Rahab also was a Canaanite, just like Tamar. But Rahab didn't pretend to be a prostitute. She was. And so Rahab comes from an idolatrous people, uh, immoral people, the Canaanites. If you know much about history in the Canaanites, uh, that will make a lot of sense to you. But God was doing something in this Canaanite woman's heart. He was working on her heart. The scene is Jericho, the walled city. And the Israelites are set to take over Jericho uh, through military action. But she heard about the power of the Israelites' God, of Yahweh God, and she feared, but she also had faith in the Israelites' God. Why? Because she knew of the power of the Israelites' God. Forty years earlier, they all knew the story about Israelites' God parting the Red Sea. They also knew that in recent history, more recently, there were victories that God gave the Israelites over the king of the Amorites. And now, the same people, the Israelites, are waiting, waiting to attack outside the walls of Jericho. And two Israelite spies, remember the story, came in and what did she do with those spies when she discovered them? She hid them. She hid them 
not hit them, she hid them. She protected, that'd be a different story. She hid them and protected them. Rahab said to them these words in Joshua chapter two, verse 11. This is Rahab talking to the spies, the Israelite spies. And as soon as we heard it, meaning the Israelite victories over the Amorites, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, listen to this, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. These are Rahab's statements, her declaration, if you will, of faith of faith when, he, when she says, he is in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. He is God, is what she's saying. So this is uh, her faith uh, in the power of God, but her faith also in the mercy of God. Not in herself, but in God. And so God spared her life, and God spared the lives of her family. And then Israel, you might know the story, conquered Jericho. And Rahab did that. Her faith made her stand up to the culture, to the immorality of her culture, to where her people were against God's people, but she stood up against it and abandoned everything that she knew that her culture was telling her to do, and she followed God God instead And courage. Courage is just a demonstration of faith. I sometimes think of it as that simple, because faith, however, is always in something, I want to play that out a little bit. Faith is in something. Faith is not faith. Faith isn't faith in faith. That makes no logical sense. Your courage can only be as courageous as the object of your faith, as is the object of your faith. So Rahab's Rahab's object of her faith was in the one true God of the Bible. That was the object of her faith. This God who was all-powerful, She knew that. The God who was full of mercy, she also knew that. Her courage didn't have the basis in her. Her courage had the basis in God. That's important. God doesn't simply command courage for no reason. It's not like he's a coach at halftime during a football game saying, okay, players, look within. Go deep. You have courage in there. Bring it out. I want to see it. God doesn't do that. He never does that. Instead, what he does is he says this. In the Bible, regularly he says these words, fear not. It's another way to say have courage. When he says fear not, what does he do then? He gives a reason. He gives a reason every time. What's the reason? It's him. It's himself. It's God. It's his nature. It's his plan. And it's his power. Every time the courage comes from knowing this God It's not what's inside us, it's who God is. And God says in the Bible, many times he says words like, fear not, and then he says, I am the one who helps you. That's where her courage came from. So this previously immoral woman, Rahab, who's a foreigner, Matthew includes her in his genealogy, genealogy of Jesus, and Rahab is celebrated also in the New Testament. So if you know about the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 11 is a big big important chapter it talks about all these heroes and heroines of the faith verse 31 by faith there it is by faith the hebrew writer recognizes it right there by faith rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies by faith she did that she later went to live in israel and rahab married solomon we saw in verse 5 or him a son, and that famous son was Boaz, ancestor of Jesus through the house of David. And so King David was Boaz and Ruth's, we're going to talk about her next, 
great-grandson. And God orchestrated all of that through faith and through courage. God honors rejected people who have faith. That's what God does. So from Rahab to Ruth, there's a tie with Boaz here. Let's look at it. Verse 5, I'll put it up there again. You see Ruth is uh, highlighted. Um, It says, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth. Ruth's story is in the book of Ruth. I'm sure several of you have studied the book of Ruth multiple times. If you haven't, go read in the Old Testament the book of Ruth. It's an amazing story, and it's about 126 years before the birth of David. Now, Ruth was a foreigner, a Moabite woman, living in the land of Moab. You can see the um, map up there. You'll see that Moab is to the east of the Dead Sea. And it was bad to be a Moabite. The Moabites were rejected. They were rejected by God. Why? Because of the constant hostilities they showed towards the Israelite people. So you didn't want to be from Moab. God rejected the people of Moab in this way. Look at Deuteronomy 23. It says this. No Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord even to the 10th generation. None of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever. And then verse 4. Because they did not meet you, here's why, with bread and with water on the way when you came out of Egypt. And because they had hired against you Balaam, the son of Beor from Pethor, Mesopotamia, to curse you. Now, there was more than this that they did. And much later in history, um, when the Jews were returning from exile in Babylon back to the promised land, back to Jerusalem, it was a Moabite who tried to stop Nehemiah from rebuilding the wall. And so it was bad to be from Moab. And Ruth existed in that category of people, the category of enemies of God. And they knew it and Matthew knew it. So during this time was a very bad time to live in because for the nation of Israel, this was during the time of the judges. And so uh, what was happening during that time? Well, God says this about that time. This was when everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That's not good stuff they were doing. That was bad stuff they were doing. This was a dark time that Ruth was living in. And this is what was happening in Israel. But Ruth, who's living in Moab, meets an Israelite family when she's in Moab. An Israelite family from the tribe of Judah. And this Israelite family, they're fleeing a famine, a famine in Bethlehem a famine that God sent because of their disobedience. And so while she's in Moab, then she meets this Jewish family, and she marries one of these Jews, and he dies, leaving her a widow. And Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, also becomes a widow. And when Naomi was depressed and down and distraught and desperate and all of that, she is about to go back to Bethlehem. Now, she's old at this time, very old. But Ruth the Moabite. It's her and her character that steps in. She was kind. She was loyal. She was good to Naomi, devoted, selfless. She showed a sacrificial love to her. And she is willing, Ruth is, to leave her homeland, to go with Naomi, or Ruth, to leave her homeland, Moab, and go with Naomi to Bethlehem to take care of her. She vows to do that. Look with me. Ruth 1.16 says this. Ruth talking to Naomi, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. For your people will be my people. She's vowing to take care of Naomi. 
an Israelite mother-in-law, the people who don't like people from Moab. But then look what she says next. Here's those famous words at the end here of this passage. It says, your people shall be my people and your God my God. So Ruth was willing to abandon what she knew, adopt Naomi's way of life, go with her and her God as well. This is a statement of faith. Now, I said a moment ago, Naomi's old by this time, quite old. Ruth, probably in her 20s. So when they go to Bethlehem, it was Ruth who needed to take initiative, and she did. She took initiative, and she went to the fields of Boaz. And Boaz, you might remember, is Naomi's, um, is a relative of Naomi. And so here's what Ruth does. Ruth says this. This is in Ruth chapter 2, verse 2. She is going to glean among the ears of the grain after him. These are Boaz's fields. She's going in to glean. In whose sight I shall find favor. She's looking to find sight uh, find favor in the sight of Boaz, but she's going to glean. What? To collect? Glean is collecting leftover grain in a field. She's going there. The reapers uh, intentionally left grain. Grain for the foreigner. Grain for orphans. Grain for widow or anybody who is in need. Ruth was a foreigner. She was a widow. Naomi was a widow. And this was the practice of the Israelites where they would leave some grain on the edges of the field for those who were either poor or in need. And this was a part of the law of Moses. You thought I was going to get away from Leviticus. No, you're not so lucky. I know. We're going back. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 9 says this, and this is what God does in his Mosaic law to help people in distress. Leviticus 19, 9 says, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, neither shall you gather the gleanings, the leftover grain, after your harvest. Now, last week I was talking to Lisa Lua Lewis about this, and some of you know Lisa, she's our women's ministry director, and, and we're talking about the sermon, she pointed out this link, actually this beautiful link, between the Mosaic law, this, this gleaning, uh, which gives dignity and food to people in need, and then this beautiful outcome of this gleaning, uh, but the introduction that that caused between Boaz and Ruth, um, and how they eventually married and produced a son, Obed. Jesus' lineage was protected through the the law of Moses, gleaning among, of course, many other things. But see verse 6. It says, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. Why do I bring that up? Because Ruth was an ancestor of Jesus through, here it is on the screen, King David. We see that when we go carefully and look carefully. So King David was Boaz and Ruth's great-grandson. So I know we're using this word uh, orchestrated a lot, but it's, it's really God's sovereignty, isn't it? His sovereignty over all things. We see uh, migration, uh, marriage, loss, more migration, a gleaning. I even mentioned that here where a Moabite woman, a Moabite woman, she comes to trust in Yahweh God. She leaves her homeland with an Israelite mother-in-law to Bethlehem where she becomes a resident alien and then eventually she becomes the great-grandmother of King David and that's Ruth's story. It's so redemptive and it's so beautiful in every way. Well, here's that slide I said I would put up again that we had up there earlier. Uh, I want to look at Bathsheba now. The story will be a bit brief. Um, Talked about it a little bit last week, but in verse six, you'll see towards the end, it says this in verse six, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, that's Bathsheba. She, the wife of Uriah, uh, 
Uriah was a Hittite, a foreigner. Again, he was one of David's top fighting men, the Bible says. Bathsheba wasn't a foreigner, but Uriah was. So in Matthew's genealogy of Jesus, there seems to be this theme, doesn't there? Uh, either women marrying a, a foreign man or, or foreigners, or Gentiles sometimes they're called. So 2 Samuel chapter 11 says this about Bathsheba. Bathsheba was beautiful. Uh, she was the daughter of Amiel and was the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And David laid with her. And she became pregnant by King David. This is adultery. And that's what we see here. Uh, David ordered her husband Uriah to be killed in an attempt to cover his own son. And now this isn't just adultery anymore. Bathsheba loses her husband to murder. That's her story. 2 Samuel 11 says this. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, David had him killed, she lamented over her husband. But the thing that David had done displeased displeased the Lord. Hurt is the word. When I was preparing for this message, if I'm Bathsheba, I'm hurt. Hurt is a word because of what David did. He's acting, David is, he's acting like the Gentile kings of the day that just did whatever they wanted to do. The evil kings of the day. She, Bathsheba, was a victim here. Uh, the, The Jews were supposed to be a light to the Gentiles, God said. That's not happening here. King David brought darkness. He brought pain. He violated the seventh commandment, adultery. He violated the tenth commandment, uh, thou shalt not covet. And the Lord took this baby because of David's sin. Bathsheba's been hurt. She lost her husband. She lost the baby, of course. Many scholars would say that Bathsheba could not have refused David most powerful man, so she was abused. And Matthew reminds us all of this. He reminds us of all of this in the ugliness when he says the wife of Uriah in the genealogy of Jesus. But God used this again. He always uses this. He's a redeeming God. It's his business. Um, Eventually, David and Bathsheba, they have four sons together, and one of them was Solomon. So God takes uh, difficult situations, doesn't he? Imperfect people, imperfect times, and uses people. Bathsheba became the queen of Israel and became the mother of the wisest and the most successful king of the Jews, and that's Solomon. This is the last woman mentioned in Matthew's genealogy up to this point until we get to Mary much later. Let me put Matthew chapter 1, verse 16, where we get to Mother Mary. It says this, And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Now, some would put Mary in this category of rejected women because she was pregnant out of wedlock. However, think about the apostles for a moment. Matthew, for example. Matthew, how did he learn the value of women? It wasn't from his culture. He learned it from Jesus. In that culture, women oftentimes were second class, but Jesus completely blew that idea out of the water. Mary, here, Mary from Nazareth, a young woman who seems from nowhere, that little town there, was chosen first by God to give the message and then receive and bring in the long, I mean, literally bring in the long-awaited Messiah, God chose her. Jesus chose another Mary. Remember Mary Magdalene? Mary Magdalene, who Jesus, um, 
who, who Jesus um, cast out seven demons out of her, and then Mary Magdalene was the first to see the resurrected Jesus and then the first to be really an evangelist to tell others, Mary again, another Mary. The apostle Peter, if you're a husband, maybe we should listen up. I need to listen to this. Do we remember what the apostle Peter said? For husbands, that unless you treat your wives with respect and unless you understand that women are co-heirs with you in the promise that your prayers will be hindered. That's a guarantee. The apostle Paul steps in. He says this, there is neither Jew nor Gentile nor slave nor free nor is there male and female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. The apostles learned the value of women not from the culture. They learned it from Jesus. So, the original audience, though, hearing this the first time in Matthew's genealogy, they still would probably be thinking about this. We have this slide again. This is what might be in their mind. Tamar talked about that, the sexual deceit. Rahab, prostitution. Ruth, a Moabite. Bathsheba's involvement in this scandal. And remember the first two up there? They were Canaanites. Now, there's Mary. We get to Mary. Uh, there's perception and there's reality, right? But God, what he's doing is orchestrating a virgin birth here, a virgin birth of his son. That's what he's orchestrating. And it says in Matthew chapter 1, verse 16, you might remember these words where it says, Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. Notice Matthew didn't say Joseph, the father of Jesus, like he did for the other ones in this genealogy. Joseph wasn't the human father, but he was the legal father. So, of course, Matthew's going to include him in this. That's important. Matthew spends verses 18 through 25 reminding everybody of the truth of who Mary really was. It was a next level orchestration. He goes back to Isaiah. This is, a, if you take notes, this is Isaiah 7. You probably know where I'm going. Isaiah 7 14. There is a prophecy from 700 years ago that Matthew now, in his writing, is going to bring in from 700 years ago. Isaiah 7 14 is what he's referencing. So if we look at Matthew 1, verse 22, we're going to have it on the board there. It says this. All this took place, you know, all this with, with Mary and everything happening here and Jesus took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Verse 23 says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And so under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we now know that this prophecy is referring to Jesus, the virgin birth. So many things are happening. I mean, during the Roman census, when Joseph takes Mary from Nazareth down to Bethlehem, fulfills another prophecy from hundreds of years before, Micah 5.2, where it says that Bethlehem, out of Bethlehem would come the ruler of Israel pointing to the Messiah. So God is orchestrating, God is working, even through history. There was suspicion around Mary early on and what happened. But what I love is Matthew takes the time to clear all that up. But I wanna look at Mary's faith just for a minute because the faith of Mary is beautiful. You remember in Luke, in the story of Luke where, where the angel goes to Mary and he, uh, the angel says this, the Lord will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the son of God. And here's how Mary responds. This is in Luke chapter one. She says this, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. She's saying, I'll submit to this. And then she says, let it be 
to me according to your word. She's all in. She believes the prophecy. She believes God's messenger and believes in this promise. And we like to think, isn't this beautiful? But two things can happen at once and be true at once. They're not mutually exclusive. One is, yeah, this is beautiful, but her world's getting turned upside down. A young, unmarried woman, pregnant, they have to go down to the census, down in Bethlehem. Her world is not easy. She's a hero in this story. She's a heroine. She's not the anti-hero. She is a hero. Yeah, Mary writes a, or Mary uh, sings a song. She sings a song about this. It's up in Luke uh, chapter 1, verse 46. And she says, she says these words of praise like this to God. She says, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. And then she says, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant, for behold, I now, uh, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. Beautiful. It is beautiful. Like at Christmas time, is beautiful too for us, right? We look around, we see all the lights, we see a, a Christmas tree. I have a picture of a Christmas tree that's beautiful and peaceful. It's outdoor, it's got snow. Wait, we don't have snow. That's somewhere else. But <laughs> there's a rough road, really, to this beautiful story, to getting there where God works but he's, and he redeems even through the hard things. You know, rarely is something worth doing or having easy or clean. Oftentimes it's, it's hard and it's messy to get to the right things, what is good. That's true of the coming of Jesus. Matthew makes that point very clear, even in and through these five women, the people that other people would reject. Jesus ignores categories, but not people. Just like Jesus chose Matthew, Matthew was despised by his own people, the Jews. He was collecting taxes for the Romans. But it's the gospel of Jesus Christ that gives us the forgiveness we need for all people, anybody who will trust in Jesus for forgiveness of sins today. If you feel out there, if you feel marginalized, if you feel rejected, realize that God's plan is to bring you in. Do you know that? Maybe you've never done that. Maybe you feel over there, you're different. If God is tugging on your heart today, if you've never asked Jesus to forgive your sins based on his sacrifice on the cross, to pay the penalty for your sins, you can do that today. If you do that, believe in his resurrection three days later that he is God and he is man. The Bible says you will be saved. You know, the only category that you and I don't want to be in is the category of condemnation. God calls us out of that into his family and it's for everybody. You know, we should do everything we can to push back on something that I call gospel killers. And by gospel killers, what I mean is anything that stands in the way of getting and seeing and believing God's grace or giving God's grace to other. The forgiveness of sins that comes by trusting and believing in the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Anything that stands in the way, that's a gospel killer. See, God sees people, not rejects, ever. Uh, so what can we do about this? I have a few so what's I want to put on the screen. The first is this. Identify what categories you've created for yourself and for others. So perhaps you're thinking of yourself today as I'm an agnostic, I'm an atheist, you know, I'm a, a realist, I'm a, a this or that. Maybe even it feels benign, but be careful because what are you putting yourself in? It's hard to get out once you put yourself in. Or are you doing that to other people? People from other schools? <laughs> what are, you, are, are we putting people in a different bucket? And if so, are we ignoring them? What are we doing? Are we creating space 
for people in our lives that are different. Two, place your identity in Christ Jesus only. You know, maybe ask yourself questions. What are you looking for? Are you in a certain group? When you ask yourself about yourself, what do you say? What do you perceive about yourself? What do you first say about yourself? And if it's not that you're a child of God, saved by the blood of Jesus, we have to be careful if it's not that first because we can so quickly go down a wrong road, an aimless road, an aimless road searching that has no end, nothing but darkness until we realize that we have our identity in Jesus Christ. Then we can be secure and ready to go. Third, uh, see yourself as part of God's redemptive story. This isn't just for the people in the genealogy we're talking through here. This is for us. This is for you and you and you and all of us, literally. Think about how God's redeemed you in your life. Not just talking about for salvation. I mean, your story, the ugly parts or the hard parts, maybe the painful parts. How has God redeemed you in those? And how can you help others? Because we can be part of that. As a Christian, we know we've been forgiven. Are we willing to forgive ourselves? If God has, can we forgive ourselves? Can we forgive others like the gospel shows we should? Can we do that? If so, we can stop rejecting people that are marginalized and we can bring people in and be part of that redemptive story for them. And fourth, I had to put this in for women up there. (laughs) I know. Just a plug because I love it. This is Jesus and women. This is going to be great. You can go to the hub, vcob.org slash hub, and you can sign up for the women's Bible study that's starting January 14th or the week of January 14th. Let's pray. God, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your love. Thank you, God, that you don't see us like others see us. You don't even see us how we see us whenever we're off, God. And all of this is true because of the gospel. So God, I pray that we would believe for anyone who hasn't believed yet that would come to faith in this moment and just say, I'm sorry, God, I've sinned against you and trust right now even in the, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. God, I pray for that. I pray that we would be gospel-believing and gospel-living people. We thank you for the story of these women. They matter to you, they matter to us, and they're beautiful in their story even when it was hard. Thank you, God, for their faith. Let it be a, um, just a beautiful picture of what our faith should be like, too. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.